You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shamba. Hi, I'm Shane Shamba, and this is War Dogs Podcast. With us today is Tom Shambo. He served in Vietnam in the 35th Security Police Squadron K-9 unit from February 1967 to February 1968. Good morning, Tom. Morning. So, Tom, I'm going to jump right in here. Uh, Can you tell me how you started in the K-9 with your first dog? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. Growing up in Chicago, uh, when I was five years old, my dad brought home a German Shepherd puppy, and I and that dog lived together and played together until I was 16 years old. So it was the only dog I really knew. When I joined the Air Force, uh, I got selected for the security police uh, squadron, and uh, I went through basic training at Lackland Air Force Base, and right from there, they sent me through security police school. And it took about eight weeks. When I got out of there, I I went down to Albany, Georgia to Turner Air Force Base. And when I arrived for my appointment, uh, there was a flyer on the wall uh, to CQ's office, which simply stated they were looking for sentry dog handlers and uh, volunteers to go to Vietnam. So I volunteered immediately with the CQ And normally, uh, security policemen would walk uh, around bombers and uh, nuclear weapon areas by himself, and uh, maybe at some other time uh, join the canine unit. But I was uh, permitted to go into on-the-job training there at Turner Air Force Base. We had a beautiful-looking kennels, and my first dog was Rondo. Uh, interesting animal. He he growled uh, from the time you took him out of the kennel until you put him back in again. His hair would stand up on his back and he'd growl the entire time. And um, But he was absolutely a gorgeous dog and, and pretty well behaved. <clears throat> he did uh, bite me uh, during our first segments of training. We were on the attack sleeve and he bit the tax sleeve and the way to get them out was you would place your hand on their back and slide your palm underneath their leather collar. And if he wouldn't release, then you would reach underneath his throat and, and squeeze and choke him and that would cause him to gag and then he would release the sleeve. Well, Rondo had been around for a while, longer than I had. So when I put my hand on his back, he just spun around and grabbed onto my arm and bit me. And as soon as he did that, I looked at him and you could see he obviously knew what he did wasn't the right thing. So he released and tucked his tail in between his legs and and, uh, went back to the heel position. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, Vietnam and the living conditions and the living quarters? Yeah, first of all, I, uh, I left Uh, after nine months, uh, they decided I needed or should go through formal dog training at Lackland Air Force Base and then through combat training there at Lackland Air Force Base. 
So they shipped me out. It was during the holiday season. So I went home back to Chicago and spent about 30 days during the holidays with my family and then flew down to Lackland Air Force Base where I went through both formal uh, dog training and combat training. And while in the formal training, my dog's name was Billy and he wasn't in the best of health. He had come from Louisiana and uh, about four weeks into training, he literally uh, died uh, while out uh, walking post with me. And I carried him to the vet clinic and uh, they did a biopsy on him and uh, determined that his heart was full of heartworms. And that's what uh, stopped his heart from beating. So for the next uh, couple of weeks in training, I became an uh, intruder. And uh, my job was to penetrate post. And they were trying a couple of different techniques to use. And one of those techniques was they would post a uh, sentry dog handler about every hundred, and I don't remember now if it was feet or yards, I think it was feet. And um, instead of walking, they would just stand stationary and they would watch their dogs for an alert. And if their dog alerted, they'd watch the way their head turned. So if the dog turned to the left, the handler would call the sentry dog handler on the post next to him to the left. And then he would watch his dog, see if he alerted. And that way they can tell if they were just walking by or if they were trying uh, to penetrate through those areas. So it didn't take me long to figure out how to penetrate. I had got out there, of course it's pitch dark out and I listened uh, for noise and I could hear the handlers praising their dogs and talking to them. And I placed a big rock there and then I would walk 100 feet and, and just listen. And again, I could hear the handler talking to his dog and I placed another rock there. And then I would walk that distance. And uh, when I determined where the center was, I would lay down and wait for some overhead noise. So it was a fighter base not far from Lackland Air Force Base. And uh, I wanted to uh, wait for a fighter jet to take off. And when it did, I, I just belly crawled all the way in and uh, wasn't detected. And I did that a number of times. So they determined that process didn't work. And then we went back to using all the dog senses. And that was uh, their nose for the uh, scent cone and then their ears for sound and their eyes for vision. And there were complications with that. First of all, if it's pitch dark outside, their sight wasn't very good. If it was noisy, uh, we had a, a base in Vietnam that was right at the end of the runway. And if they were fueling planes or running up and main, doing maintenance on jet engines, you couldn't hear anything, so neither could the dog. And if it was pitch dark out, you couldn't see. And then if the wind was to your back, the dog wouldn't pick up a scent cone from somebody coming across. So technically, all three of his uh, sensors uh, were void, unusable. Going back to your question about uh, the conditions in Vietnam, it was much like uh, Arizona in the sense that it was extremely hot. Uh, it was very desert-like. 
lot of prickly pear, uh, shrub trees. Uh, very humid during the monsoon season. It would rain for about 30 days, uh, pretty much from the time we got uh, out that afternoon until the next morning when we came in from our post. It would rain that entire time. So we would be soaking wet. We lived in tents in the beginning, 10-man tents. And we uh, shared five people, or five bunks were shared by the 10 of us. And uh, then we moved later into a barracks. It was uh, screened on the side so the wind could come through, which meant the dust could come through and the rain could come through. But it was better than having a solid wall. We didn't have air conditioning. So we, we got off, best I can remember, we were off one or two days a month. And uh, those days we could go into town, into Fanrang, what we called the Strip. And the living conditions of the people there were pretty poor. I ended up uh, communicating with one of my uh, so-called aunts and uh, told them about the orphanages over there and then they would send clothes or food, supplies, and then we'd take them out to the orphanages on our day off. Wow. Well, that's really <clears throat> noble. Um, can you think of a, a time or a moment, uh, a story that stays with you ever since your tour? Well, I had a number of uh, minor uh, alerts on post, and uh, There were probably three that I really uh, remember well. And uh, then there was another one that I'll talk about at the end called Friendly Fire. Uh, the first one, I was uh, assigned a, what they called the strip gate at Fanrang, and it was uh, where the convoys would go out at night to Cameron Bay to get supplies. And my understanding was that every time they would depart Van Rang to Cameron Bay, they would get shot at in an area called the Coconut Grove. And it was uh, palm trees that had coconuts on them. And they would crawl up in the trees and, and lay up there. And then they would have a pretty good uh, opportunity to fire down on the convoys. So my instructions were to uh, wait and see if there was any uh, fire and if I could determine where the tracers were coming from to return fire back at them. And there was, and I did. And then they targeted me and started shooting at me. And I don't know that I could have gotten any lower to the ground without being dirt itself, but I tried to get as low as I could. He was a pretty good shot. He was certainly bouncing bullets around me, but, uh, that, that's the one I do remember. And it didn't last all that long. Once the convoy cleared the coconut grove, then he ceased fire. And, and that was the end of that one. Then there was a, a, another night where my dog had alerted and literally he got to so close that uh, I fired a couple of rounds and then I had return fire and uh, I carried about 300 rounds with me when I went out to post and 
four slap flares. And it was so dark out, I couldn't see. Uh, I could only tell where he was from the tracer rounds. And I decided to shoot up a flare. And when I did, it lit up the entire area. And uh, it was about the size of a football field. And it was extremely bright. And I could see uh, the penetrator probably, well, I don't know. At the time, it seemed relatively close. I'd say about 50 to 60 feet from me. And uh, he was shooting at me, and I was shooting at him. And uh, he was firing well above my head. I don't think he was a very good shot. And then every time I would pull the trigger, Ronald, my dog, would jump forward, and I would literally fire into the ground. So for 300 rounds, I pretty much plowed dirt, and uh, he cleared the skyway above me. At the time, you know, it, it was just something that happened, and I called for uh, support because I was running out of ammo, and they advised me they would come when the firing had ceased to me didn't seem necessary at that point. Either I wasn't going to be around much longer or, or uh, I, the, the intruder wasn't going to be around, one of the two. So they never did come out. And uh, later I walked to back to my post and I was uh, with two canine handlers who would meet sometimes right on the edge of our post. Uh, we sat down and had a cup of coffee and, and uh, I got to shaking so bad thinking about what could have happened, not what did happen, but what could have happened. And uh, it took me a while to calm down again. And then there was a night where uh, the 101st Cavalry was out in front of us and they were uh, told to, to, that the enemy were coming in, in in force and they were going to block that into the base off so they couldn't get to us. And we were the secondary um, protection. And there were, of course, me and my dog. So they told us if, if we saw uh, a green flare, that meant the Army had overcome the, the VC. If we saw a red flare, uh, the opposite had occurred. So there was quite a bit of gunfire out there. And all of a sudden, a red flare went up in the air. And I... I thought if they think I'm going to be able to stop what the 101st Cavalry couldn't stop, I'm in trouble. And uh, shortly thereafter, green, green flare went back up in the air. So I was told later that they had just misfired the wrong color flare, which just about caused me to. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God for that. <clears throat> uh, were there any other notable conflicts while you were there? Yeah, I, I was talking about um, friendly fire. Uh, every night before we went on post, we were given sea rations uh, that we ate later sometime during the night while we were out there. And um, I had, for the first time, uh, gotten a fruit cocktail. And I was pretty excited about having meal I was really going to enjoy. And when I arrived on post, the wind was kind of crossways on an angle, 45 degree angle across my post. So I wasn't getting a direct scent code. 
and uh, the grass was probably about waist deep on that post and a lot of shrub trees. So I started patrolling my post looking for a clear spot where I could put my backpack down. And uh, just as I had come to a clearing and took off my backpack, uh, my dog alerted and uh, started to try to follow the scent. But because of the direction of the wind, he kept uh, walking out of the scent cone and I have to take him back and try to pick it back up again. And and got to be quite a while I was out there. And, and I think the intruder was smart enough to figure out how dogs work because he seemed to, to know how to get out of that scent cone and, and uh, make it more challenging for me to, to try to find him. And after about 45 minutes or so, uh, I called for a, a strike team, which was a three-man team. There was a, a guy that had an M79 grenade launcher, an M60 machine gun, and then an M16. And I asked, we had met up at, at my post and I'd asked him to, to give me some backup. I'd get out ahead of him about a hundred feet or so and try to pick up descent again. And as I was walking the post, I hit descent and it was really strong. And uh, I started uh, following it. And all of a sudden, my dog was up on his hind legs and pulling as hard as he could pull. And it was pitch dark. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And I took my M16 and I laid it over my dog's head. It formed kind of a sight between his ears and his nose. You could, you could literally sight it like a gun. And he was looking right at the intruder. So if I could fire that gun over his head, I felt pretty comfortable I was gonna at least get close. And when I fired, I fired three rounds and I heard somebody scream. And then I fired three more rounds. And then I heard language that I know a VC wouldn't have used. And it was pretty clear English. So I ceased fire and, and I yelled and the handler I had shot uh, had come in from the backside of my post and uh, he yelled back that he had been hit. So the strike team and I went up there and I was able to muzzle my dog and give it to the strike team. And then I was able to go in on the handler's dog and uh, muzzle his dog up. And was that common that another uh, soldier would be that close to your post? Uh, no, actually, you know, we, we had radio communications and he, he had to know for some time that I was uh, alerted on an intruder and that I was uh, working the post and then I'd call for a strike team. And I would thought if he wanted to get involved, he would have at least notified us that he was going to come over. And uh, I didn't get any uh, notifications. So I was unaware uh, that he was out there. So and after that, the gunfire exchange, what happened next? Well, we both got relieved of post. He ended up 
going to the hospital to be checked out for his wounds, which were all very minor. As a matter of fact, I think they used Band-Aids on all three of them. And they brought me in to talk to me for a while to make sure that I guess I was sane or I don't know, I don't know why. They released us both and we went back to the barracks and uh, sat and visited for a while. I went to bed and uh, was woken the next morning about six o'clock by security police and placed under arrest and spent the next 30 days busting rocks until I went to court. And, and well, I tell me a little bit about that conversation you had with them that night in the, the barracks. Was it a friendly conversation or? Was he yeah, we, chilling uh, out? No, we had a very friendly conversation. Uh, it was very understood that it was friendly fire and what had happened. And I got no uh, feeling that there was any hostility or anger or anything uh, until that next morning. And when I went to trial, the the only thing that saved me actually was the strike team because they were with me. Uh, his statement, I guess, was that I had uh, gotten in an argument with him and got mad and shot him, which wasn't true. But uh, I don't, I don't know why. That's what I know. And the strike team came forward, and they were able to confirm what that you didn't see him or didn't talk to him. Or... Correct. They were the ones that testified on my behalf. Once. You were very lucky they were there to witness that. Yeah, so <clears throat> after the trial, and I was found not guilty, then I went back to work on the post and, and uh, finished my uh, tour of duty out there. And you were in Vietnam for how long again? About a year, was it? One year, from February 6, uh, 1967 to February 6, 1968, when I flew out to Cameron Bay and then back to the United States. Oh, okay. Um, did you have any issues that may have caused PTSD? Um, I don't, uh, I don't know. Uh, I can tell you that when I got home, I went right to work. Uh, well, I finished my, I had about another year to go that I finished at Ellsworth Air Force Base, also as a dog handler. And, uh, when I got out of the service, I went right into law enforcement. I was struggling with uh, some authority and anger issues, drinking. I started drinking pretty heavy. And uh, that went on for, I don't know, about four years, I guess. And then uh, I stopped drinking. How did you overcome that? How did you, did you just wake up one day and say, all right, that's enough of that? Or... Well, it started with my sergeant on the police department. He, he, I mean, it was obvious that I had a drinking problem. I, I never drank on duty, but I did drink on my days off and pretty heavily. And he had observed that, obviously. Um, so he, he pulled me aside one night and he said, you know, you continue what you're doing, you're going to be out of a job, and probably out of a marriage. And I want to straighten up. And ironically, at the same time, uh, my father-in-law needed somebody to come farm, uh, which I had no clue how to do. But uh, I volunteered to go, and when I got down there, I quit drinking and stayed on the farm for the next two years. All right. Well, I'm glad you were able to overcome that. Uh, any final words about your 
tour or about the experience? Um, no, I, I think for a young kid, you know, 18 years old, uh, flying for the first time out of the country, it was uh, interesting. I flew uh, from Lackland to Santa, uh, San Francisco, where I boarded a plane and we flew um, over to Tonsonu, but we flew to Hawaii first. I had never seen the island of Hawaii. That was my first sighting of that. And then from there to Okinawa. And my dad had been stationed in Okinawa, so that was interesting. And then from there to Guam, and from Guam to uh, Tonsonu Air Base in uh, Saigon. And from there down to Fan Rang. And uh, when we came out over to Tonsonu, because uh, war was going on, uh, four fighter planes flew up alongside of us on either side, and then we kind of did a nosedive down uh, low enough that we could get into landing. It was a pretty exciting landing for somebody who had never experienced flying before. And then coming yeah. back, you know, I went through Japan and Alaska and, and experienced some areas of the country I'd never seen before. Well, that's an exciting experience, at least. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for your service to our country and thank you for your time today. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to War Dogs Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review as I always love feedback from our listeners. Have a great day.